Dear Father, Lord, we sing songs like that, and uh, when you bring those truths to our minds and we contemplate those things and we think on our sin, how grievous our sin is in your sight, and we hear the good news, we preach it to ourselves, we read about it in your word, we sing songs about it. Sometimes it can feel like it's too good to be true. Sometimes we can feel like that maybe that's true for others, but not for me. And we can forget that salvation is all the work of God. It is all the work of Christ and that he has fully paid our sin debt and that he has clothed us in his righteousness and that it is he who has merited heaven for us. Um, it's not up to us to merit it. It's, up, it's, uh, it's to us to trust in him, to hide ourselves in him, and to let him carry us into his presence forever. Um, Lord, you've given us your spirit who is a pledge of our inheritance in Christ. Um, this good news is true. It's so good it must be true because that's how gracious you are. Lord, help us to, to remember how gracious you are and that your grace overwhelms our sin, that the blood of Christ has made us white as snow. He has set us free, and we are able to walk even now in newness of life because he has risen from the dead, and he is bringing us to himself when he returns. And so, Lord, please fill us with that hope. Help us to fix our hope completely upon him, knowing that we will not be put to shame for having put our hope in him, Lord, because he is a mighty Savior who never loses his children, he never falters, he never stumbles, he never loses track of us. His salvation is perfect. And we thank you and praise you for that and pray that you would convince us even more of that truth this morning as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at John chapter 20 this morning, verses 19 through 29. As you're turning there, I just want us to consider what today represents, really every Sunday represents, and that is the Lord's resurrection, that our Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. We are reminded that we serve a living Savior, not a dead Savior. The empty tomb tells us that, in the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus was not a liar and he was not a lunatic. The empty tomb tells us that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He is Lord. But is that all that our Lord's resurrection is supposed to be in our lives? Is it only a truth to affirm like when we take a written exam and we just regurgitate onto the page what we've stored up in our brains? Are we just supposed to woodenly say, yes, I believe that, and that is as far as it goes in our lives? Or instead, is this a truth that is meant to radically change the way that we live? If it does not radically change the way that we live, what's the point? Our passage this morning shows us that the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is supposed to radically change the way that we live. In our passage, we're going to see two ways 
that believing the resurrection radically changed the lives of the disciples at that time, and thereby we will see two ways that believing the resurrection will radically change our lives. First, we're going to see that the resurrection, believing the resurrection, that will cause us more and more to commit to the Great Commission. To commit to the Great Commission. Secondly, believing the resurrection will cause us more and more to confess the Great Confession. Confess the Great Confession. First, let's take a look at how believing the resurrection will cause us more and more to commit to the Great Commission. Now, we see that in verses 19 through 23. But before we start working through this, I want you to think about the Great Commission. What scripture text jumps to your mind when I say Great Commission? Matthew 28. We always think of Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, Jesus said. But actually, each one of the Gospels has some record of Christ commissioning the disciples. And John, the Gospel of John, is no different. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see an instance of this commissioning take place. And we see it in verses 19 through 23. But let's begin by looking at verse 19. Let's see what John records for us. He says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. In this verse, John is very careful to point out that the event that he is now speaking of took place on the evening of that first resurrection Sunday. Now by this time, Jesus has already appeared to the group of ladies that went in the early morning to the tomb, and when they found it empty, at the instruction of the angels, they were rushing back to tell the disciples, and Jesus met them on the way. You see that in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. He's already appeared to Mary Magdalene, who had come back to the tomb alone after uh, Peter and John had left, and Jesus appeared to her. See that in our chapter, actually, verses 11 through 18. He's already appeared to Peter while he was alone. We saw that in Luke 24. And he has already appeared to the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. We also saw that in Luke 24. And then, according to Luke 24, verse 36, those two disciples, when they encountered the risen Christ, they left that same day, that same evening, and went back to Jerusalem and were told we're told that they made it back by the time Jesus appeared a fourth time to all the disciples in that room together. So this, this account of verses 19 uh, through 23 is really the fifth appearance of Jesus on that same day. The fifth appearance of Jesus. He's really been getting all over the place that day. And here in this verse, we find the disciples huddled together in that one place with the doors shut for fear of the Jews. But despite the shut doors, Jesus miraculously comes and he stands in their midst. We're not told how he did this, and it's probably not all that fruitful to speculate about it. We're simply shown in this passage that Jesus' appearance is miraculous. 
The doors were shut, and somehow he still comes in and appears to them. And what are the first words out of his mouth in this verse? He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That was actually a standard greeting at the time. It's sort of like when we say goodbye to someone, we say, be well. And when we say that, we're simply expressing a desire for that person to experience a degree of prosperity in their lives, but we don't actually have any power to cause them to experience that. It's just a wish. But now, when Jesus says it, when Jesus says this kind of greeting, it is filled to overflowing with significance because Jesus actually has the power to bring about the peace and the well-being that he is desiring for his people. He says it as one who can actually bring it about. And then we come to verse 20. So he says, peace be with you, verse 20. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus, proving that he actually could bring about that peace in their lives, he shows them the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side. The very wounds by which he purchased their peace. And he showed them his wounds because he wanted to assure them that they were not seeing a ghost. I want you to turn back to Luke 24 because Luke actually gives a more in-depth account of this incident. Luke 24 and verse 36. So at this time in Luke's narrative, the two disciples who were coming back from Emmaus, they've returned. So they're there with the other disciples And they're recounting what they had seen when they were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Verse 36, While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So we see Jesus invites his disciples to touch him, to handle him, to feel his skin, to feel the bones beneath his skin as they grasp his hands, to see that he was not a ghost or a disembodied spirit. He was the same Jesus that they had spent the past three years with, back from the dead. The Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he alludes back to this time when he writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. They touched him, they saw him, they heard him. And so the disciples' doubts gave way to rejoicing as these proofs become too much for them to deny or explain away. Verse 21 in John 20, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
Again, he pronounces peace over their lives. And this was important because the disciples must have remembered how just a couple nights before they had utterly abandoned Jesus on the night of his greatest trial, on the night of his betrayal. They may have been expecting wrath from Jesus, but instead he brings them peace. They might have thought that Jesus would have no use for cowards like them. But Jesus banishes all of those thoughts away when he pronounces his peace over them. And instead of decommissioning them out of his service, he commissions them into his service. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Notice he says, as the Father has sent me has sent me. The verb there, sent, it's in the perfect tense. That's why it says has sent. And usually when an author decides to use the perfect tense, it's because he wants to convey that an act has been completed in the past, but the results of that act are continuing on into the present. And so when Jesus says, the Father has sent me, he's communicating that he was sent in the past, but the Father's sending of him has continuing results. His sending of the Son will continue to bear fruit. Now, how does what Jesus came to accomplish still bear fruit? It bears fruit through him sending his disciples. One commentator said it like this, Christ's disciples do not take over Jesus' mission. Rather, his mission continues and is effective in their ministry. He's saying that they are his instruments through which he will continue to accomplish his mission of bringing all the ones that God has given him into the fold. If you turn back for a second to John 14, you will see this very uh, thing being played out as Jesus is teaching his disciples. John chapter 14 and verse 12. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So you see, Christ is still the one doing it. He's doing it through his disciples. So the mission that he's sending them on is his mission. It's his mission. It's his accomplishing of these things. Now what was Jesus sending the disciples to do? Well, he was sending them into the world in order to proclaim his word, to proclaim his gospel to the world so that the world may believe in Christ. And it's interesting, if you look at verse 31 of John 20, we find that the Apostle John, even in his old age, is continuing to fulfill this mission that Christ commissioned him to fulfill. He says, But these have been written, speaking of what he's written in this gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, most Bible-believing scholars believe that John wrote his gospel when he was advanced in age probably between the dates of 70 and 100 A.D., decades after the actual events took place. 
And so we find that the Apostle John didn't ever think that the Lord gave provision for him to ever retire from this mission. He was to do this till the day he died. And it's the same for us. When Jesus commissioned his disciples, we might think that's a poor choice. Because what did they just do? What did they just demonstrate about themselves that evening of Good Friday when they abandoned him? So what is the confidence that he's giving them or that we can have looking back on their lives to think that they're going to behave any differently from how they behaved that Good Friday evening? Well, verse 22, we find that Jesus supplies them with what they need to accomplish this overwhelming task. He says, verse 22, And when he had said this, when he had said, As the Father has sent me, I also send you, When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. By doing this, breathing, by saying this, receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus is performing a symbolic and a prophetic act. He is pointing ahead to the day of Pentecost when he, along with the Father, would personally equip the disciples with the Holy Spirit to enable them to do the very thing he's sending them to do. And we see this play out when we get to Acts chapter 1 and 2, when they're all together and the Spirit is poured out upon them. They are equipped. They receive the Holy Spirit. And the moment they do that, what do they go out and do? They begin proclaiming the gospel, speaking of the mighty works of God. The Spirit equipped them to stand boldly and to proclaim Christ to the lost. So that's the great confidence that he's giving these disciples, that he's going to send the comforter, the helper, to carry them and enable them to do what he's sending them to do. But that's not the only assurance he gives them. He speaks one more comforting word to them in verse 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now this verse has had much ink spilled over it by commentators as they have wrestled with it. And they've come to differing conclusions. And I'm going to tell you where I personally land, but I'll leave it up to you to discern what I'm saying to see if it's being faithful to scriptures or not. But here, the context in which Jesus is speaking is one of evangelism and the Great Commission. He is sending them to carry out his mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he's equipping them with his Holy Spirit in order to enable them to do that. So the whole context here in these three verses is one of evangelism, the Great Commission. And so it seems best to take what Jesus says here as meaning if you declare someone's sins are forgiven by virtue of the gospel that they have received, they have been forgiven. It's a true statement. It matches up with the decision that God has made regarding them in heaven. And if you, by preaching the gospel, you find that they have rejected the gospel, you can authoritatively declare you are not forgiven. Your sins remain on you. And that judgment will be in perfect accordance with what God has already decided in heaven because of their rejection of the gospel. But you might say to me, but Josh, 
That's not what it says. It doesn't say if you declare that someone's sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. He says, if you forgive the sins of any. That's quite direct. I don't see how you can stick one sheet of paper in between that distinction that you're trying to draw. Well, yes, I struggled with that too. But I want us to think about how the disciples understood this statement that Jesus had made. When you walk through the book of Acts and you look at the way the apostles speak when they preach the gospel, they never ever speak in these terms. They never ever say, I forgive you, my son. Go and be at peace. I've forgiven you. That means you're saved now. No, they always say that forgiveness is granted by God alone. They always say that it's by the name of Jesus that you may be forgiven. That's how they always talk. And I could give you a whole slew of passages in the book of Acts that demonstrate that. But I I would invite you to walk through the sermons that the apostles preach in the book of Acts and you will find that that's the case. So they appeared to understand it in that way. But if that's the case, why does Jesus say it like this? Why does he say, if you forgive the sins of any, or if you retain the sins of any? Well, I think he says it that way to emphasize what we saw back in verse 21. Remember, Jesus is continuing his mission and his ministry of providing forgiveness for his people through the through his disciples' proclamation of his gospel. He is doing his work through the disciples, and he is closely tying the disciples as his instruments to himself. So it's as if he himself is speaking through them, pronouncing forgiveness if someone responds positively to the gospel, pronouncing judgment if they reject the gospel. In fact, we see something just like this in the life of the Apostle Paul. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And I want you to listen carefully to what he says in verse 20. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see Paul's understanding of his gospel ministry? That is, he is proclaiming the gospel as he is exhorting people to be reconciled to God. He's saying that God is making an appeal through him. He's saying that he's speaking on Christ's behalf. It's Christ, ultimately, who is proclaiming this gospel through him. It's Christ who pronounces forgiveness It's Christ, the judge of all the earth, who pronounces judgment if someone does not receive the gospel. And this really is a great assurance to Christ's disciples that he says this. And it's a great assurance to us. Because when we endeavor to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, the message that we're proclaiming to someone is not some hopeful shot in the dark. Well, gee, I really hope this works out. I really hope that what I just said is effective. Whenever we proclaim the gospel to someone, whether it's in conversation or handing out a tract or writing a letter, Jesus himself is carrying out his mission through you. His 
people. Now, how often is Jesus effective in what he does? He's always effective. He's the God-man. He doesn't do anything that is ineffective. How, does, how the person responds to the gospel does not determine whether or not the gospel was effective. Because when you proclaim the gospel to someone, it's either going to break a hard heart and bring someone to salvation, or it's going to harden their heart and seal them up unto the day of judgment. It all depends on what God's will to accomplish through the gospel is. It's all up to him. It's all his decision on how that person responds. If they receive the gospel, you can confidently declare to them, listen, if you have sincerely put your trust in Christ on the authority of God's word, you are forgiven. You are reconciled to God. But if you proclaim the gospel and they reject it, you can confidently warn them, listen, God has justly not forgiven you at this time because you are rejecting his message. I hope you will reconsider I hope you will bow your knee to Christ. You see how either way, God's purposes are being fulfilled and the name of Christ is being exalted as you are faithful to proclaim the gospel. So in verse 23, Jesus is emphasizing the effectiveness of the gospel message that these disciples are taking to the world. And we take the same gospel to the world. It's just as effective now as it was in the day of Peter, James, and John. It's always effective because Jesus, the sent one, is always accomplishing the mission that God sent him to accomplish. Our part is simply to proclaim him and to let him do his work through his message. That's all. You see how believing in the resurrection, that Christ is alive, Christ is giving us his spirit. Christ is personally going to be at work through the message that he is calling on us to bring to the world. Do you see how that should encourage us and fuel us and drive us to commit ourselves even more to the Great Commission? This isn't some shtick that we're offering to the world that, you know, maybe on a good day it might accomplish something in that person's life. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Believing the gospel or believing in the resurrection of Jesus shows us that the gospel is the word of God that can break rock. It's a fire. It's powerful for converting lost souls. So if we believe the resurrection, we will more and more be committed to the Great Commission. Next, in verses 24 to 29, we see that if we believe in the resurrection, we will confess the great confession. The success of the gospel ultimately does not depend upon our strategies or our personalities or our abilities of persuasion. The success of the gospel ultimately depends upon who Jesus is. And in verses 24 through 29, we see one of the clearest confessions of who Jesus is in the whole Bible. In verse 24, Thomas comes on the scene, says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. He was not there that Sunday evening when Jesus came. Talk about missing out. 
Now, John has already introduced us in his gospel to Thomas. For example, we hear from him in chapter 11, where we're told that Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus is planning on going to visit the family of Lazarus, who were living near Jerusalem. And the fact that it was near Jerusalem where he was planning to go made the disciples think, that's a very bad idea. Because last time Jesus was there, they tried to stone him. So they say, that's probably not a good idea for you to go back there. But when they see that they cannot change Jesus' mind, John in chapter 11 says this in verse 16. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Thomas already concludes how this is going to turn out. Let us also go so that we may die with him. Later on, when the disciples are celebrating Passover with Jesus in the upper room on the night when he was going to be betrayed, we see Thomas speak up again when Jesus tells the disciples that he's going away. He's leaving them. We see it in chapter 14, verses 4 through 5. Chapter 14, verse 4, Jesus, after saying that he's leaving, he says, And you know the way where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So these are the two statements we get from Thomas. John has introduced him to us. Now, if these statements are representative of the kind of personality Thomas had, how does he strike you? He's not exactly a bubbly, bouncing-off-the-walls kind of guy. He's more like the stuffed donkey Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. He's quite different from, say, Peter. Peter, who was in Jesus' inner circle and seemed to be upbeat, take charge, stick his foot in his mouth kind of guy. Very different from Thomas. But Thomas loved Jesus just as much as Peter did. He expressed a willingness to die with Jesus, just like Peter did. And just like Peter, Thomas was distraught when Jesus said he was leaving them. You can imagine the panic in his voice when he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? He might have been the type of guy who tried not to ever get his hopes up too high, because he never knew when the other shoe would drop. But with Jesus, Thomas had gotten his hopes up. He had fixed his hope so completely on the Lord Jesus that when he saw Jesus get crucified, it must have absolutely destroyed him. And he may have committed to never get his hopes up ever again, to never again leave himself vulnerable to that kind of devastation. And so, we read what we read in verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas's heart has gotten hard in his grief even harder than the other disciples. Now, it's true that when the ladies 
first came to the disciples after meeting Jesus on the road, and they said to the disciples, the Lord is risen, it's true that all of them refused to believe what the ladies said. So they all had hard hearts to some degree. But when Jesus appears to Peter alone, and then Peter shares with them that Jesus has appeared with, to him, that appeared to push them over the edge. That appeared to be enough for them. Remember Luke 24, they said, the Lord has really risen and appeared to Simon. You see how they have begun to accept that this has really happened on the testimony of the ladies and on the testimony of Peter. But do you see how much harder Thomas's heart is? Thomas now has the testimony of the ladies and Mary Magdalene. He has the testimony of Peter. He has the testimony of those two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And now he even has the testimony of all the rest of the apostles who've seen the risen Lord for themselves. He has far more eyewitness testimony than any of the other disciples had, and yet he still refuses to believe. He won't even entertain the idea that this has happened. Verse 26, After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. After eight days. So Thomas has continued in this state for a whole week. What a rough week that must have been for him. And then the next Sunday, after that resurrection Sunday rolls around, and there the disciples are again, all together, once again with the doors shut, and Jesus comes again and pronounces peace upon them again. I want you to listen to what Jesus says to Thomas in verse 27. He says, Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do you notice how Jesus commands Thomas to do every single one of the things that Thomas had unbelievingly demanded be done before he would believe? Even though Jesus had not been physically present when Thomas made those demands, it was clear Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said. No imposter could have known what Thomas had said, only Jesus. No imposter would have gaping holes in his body that Thomas could stick his fingers and his hand into, only Jesus. No apparition could be handled in that way. And then Jesus commands him to no longer be unbelieving, but believing. And then we come to verse 28, where Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Unbelieving Thomas, overwhelmed by the appearance of his beloved Lord, back from the dead, bursts forth with the greatest confession of faith that we find anywhere in the whole Bible. My Lord and my God, he says. There wasn't a devout Jew on the planet who would ever dare utter a statement like that, calling a man his God. But Thomas sees clearly, by virtue of Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus is his Lord and he is his God. He sees clearly that all of his hope 
that he had fixed upon the person of Jesus had not been misplaced after all. Thomas experienced the same thing that King David experienced when he wrote Psalm 25. Listen to the first three verses of that psalm. Verses 1 through 3, David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Thomas had thought he'd been put to shame for putting so much hope in Jesus. But the resurrection showed him that he was right to put all of his hope in Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Thomas believed in Jesus because he saw him face to face. What a blessed experience that must have been to Thomas, to see Jesus, to have his faith strengthened and vindicated in that way, to see him face to face. We can sometimes, when we consider that, when we consider these, these uh, historical truths that have happened to the disciples, we can feel left out, like Thomas must have initially felt left out, because we've not seen the risen Jesus with our own eyes. We've not heard him with our own ears. We've not handled him with our own hands. But here in verse 29, Jesus assures us that we are actually blessed. We are happily at peace with God if we believe in him without seeing him. You see, Thomas should have believed without seeing. He should have believed because the scriptures and Jesus himself had testified beforehand to him that he would rise from the dead. That should have been enough. God's word should have been enough for him. And we have those same scriptures in our hands this morning. And Jesus himself, through his word, has testified to us that he is alive. We have all the proof that we need in our very hands this morning that Jesus is alive. We believe this because God's inerrant, all-sufficient, and infallible word tells us that our Lord is alive. And as we've sung, the day is coming when Jesus will return. And on that day, our faith will turn to sight, and the hope that we have placed on Jesus will be vindicated when we see him with our own eyes, when we hear him with our own ears, and we touch him with our own hands, putting our fingers into the nail prints and our hands into his side, feeling the wounds that have purchased our everlasting peace. Our risen Lord has commissioned us, so let us proclaim him to our world until we see him face to face. Do you believe this? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for all of these eyewitness testimonies that you have recorded for us in your word. We thank you for all the prophecies in your word that speak of the Messiah, and we see how he fulfilled everything right down to the last detail. Lord, your word is a solid rock for our faith to stand upon, an unshakable foundation, Lord. 
Help us, Father, to believe what you have said to us, that our Lord Jesus is alive. And may our trust in that truth, our trust in Christ, may that fuel us to commit ourselves anew to the great commission. He's sending us to proclaim his gospel. Lord, make us faithful to follow him, to allow uh, ourselves to be used by him, Lord. He doesn't need our permission. He's Lord. He's commanded it. Help us not to be rebels, Lord. Help us to be humble servants, eager to do his will, thankful that he's included us in his mission that he is doing, that he would graciously allow us to participate, Lord. Make us faithful to this. And Lord, may our trust in this truth drive us to confess even more boldly, even more uh, trustingly, the great confession that Jesus is our Lord and our God. We pray you'd accomplish this in our hearts, even this morning, in Jesus' name, amen.